This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, A Woman Scorned. Last week, I began the case of a young man named Travis Alexander, who was found brutally murdered in his home on June 9th, 2008. His ex-girlfriend, Jody Arias, was quickly suspected of the crime. Last time, I took you through the crime scene and into the backgrounds of both Travis and Jody. At the end of the last episode, we find out that Travis had become very angry at Jody regarding a betrayal and sent her several text and email messages telling her he hated her, calling her evil, and saying he no longer wants her in his life. Nine days later, he would be dead. This is part two of Jody Arias. Mesa police detective Esteban Flores entered Travis Alexander's home on the morning of June 10th, just before 10 a.m. Travis's friends had found him dead the night before and called police. Now Flores would begin the investigation into his murder. Not long after arriving, he was joined by a prosecutor from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, Juan Martinez. Martinez would just happen to be on duty at the DA's office as part of the Homicide Division when the call came in from the Mesa Police Department about a reported murder. Martinez's shift had technically ended at 8 a.m. that morning, but he'd answered the call around 8.30. He decided to take the assignment instead of passing it off to the next shift. Martinez couldn't know it then, but this case would encompass years of his life and make his name known to millions around the country and even the world. Now Flores and Martinez walked through the crime scene together. Flores had been at the scene the night before, but now he was armed with a search warrant. Martinez arrived to view the crime scene before the body was removed to the coroner's office. Martinez noted a few things as he walked through the house. One was a carpet cleaner sitting in the middle of the living room. It looked out of place in the rest of the tidy, well-kept room. He noted that a doggy gate had been pushed aside, allowing the detective to access the stairs to the second floor. Detective Flores told him that Travis owned a black pug named Napoleon. The pup had been picked up by one of Travis's friends earlier that day. At the top of the stairs was a large landing set up as a home theater. There was a big screen TV, a DVD player, projector, and beanbag chairs. The only thing that seemed out of place was a camera case lying next to one of the beanbag chairs. It was empty. Walking through a set of double doors, they entered the master bedroom suite. They noticed that it was cooler in this room than in the rest of the house. The air conditioner was on and was already working double duty since this was Arizona in June. The temperatures often reached triple digits by 10 a.m. in this part of the country. Martinez wondered if turning the air conditioner up was normal or done by the killer to slow down decomposition of the body. Martinez immediately saw a large blood stain at the entrance to the hallway that led to the master bathroom. Crime lab technicians were already there, dusting for prints and recording blood and other evidence. They walked past the hallway and through the walk-in closet to access the bathroom from the other side, so as not to disturb the crime scene and collection efforts. The first thing that caught Martinez's attention as they entered the bathroom was the large volume of blood spilled and streaked on the sink directly in front of him. The entire room was a virtual bloodbath. The victim had obviously been in a desperate struggle for his life. He then observed the body in the shower stall, located on the opposite wall facing the sink. 
He saw the awkward position the body was in. He looked as if he'd been stuffed into the shower stall by someone. Martinez also noted the large gash across the neck. Finally, he and Flores discussed the plastic tumbler that was found on the floor near the body. The detective noted that some of the blood on the floor of the bathroom was semi-dry and sticky, while some of it was diluted with water. They guessed that someone had tried to use the cup to rinse some of the blood away. This would have been pretty futile, given the amount of blood observed. Maybe they were trying to wash away something specific, like footprints in blood, they thought. They could tell that enough water had been used to flood into the bathroom closet, where it stained a cardboard box inside a light pinkish-red color along the bottom. The detective pointed out to Martinez the spent shell casing lying on the floor in a pool of blood. The police had searched for a weapon, but no gun or knife had yet been found. Flores then told the prosecutor that several of Travis's friends had told him to look into his ex-girlfriend, a woman named Jody, as someone who may have sought revenge on him. Jody had already called the police department asking to speak to the detective investigating Travis's murder. Flores then led him downstairs to a laundry room, where he pointed out something very interesting he'd found inside the washing machine. Martinez looked inside, and along with some wet clothing, was a black camera that had been run through the wash cycle as well. A black camera was found among the wet clothes in Travis's washing machine. The clothes were discolored and smelled as if bleach had also been used in the washer. I don't know if we're going to get anything out of it, Flores told Martinez about the camera, but we're going to process it and see what we can find. Sheets and blankets matching the ones that had been stripped off of the large bed upstairs were found in the dryer, already washed and dried. It was obvious that whoever had done this spent some time trying to clean up the crime scene. They remembered the carpet cleaner found in the living room and wondered if it had been used to get rid of evidence as well. On interviewing friends of Travis Alexander, they learned about the argument Travis had had with Jody Arias just a week prior to the last time they'd seen him alive. Taylor Cyril told the detective that Travis had told his ex-girlfriend that he did not want to see or speak to her again. Marie Mimi Hall told them that she was scheduled to leave on a trip to Cancun, Mexico, with Travis just one day after he was found dead. This, perhaps, the investigator thought, was a motive that might point to the ex-girlfriend. Travis, who everyone said Jody Arias was obsessed with, seemed to be moving on and even going away on a vacation with another woman. It wouldn't be the first time they'd seen a jilted lover turn violent. Jody, not having received a return call from the detective yet, began calling Travis's friends. One of his roommates, Zach Billings, was standing outside of the house with Detective Flores when his cell phone rang. It was Jody. The detective told him not to answer it. Not reaching anyone, Jody then called police for a second time. The dispatcher told Flores that Miss Arias was insistent this time, saying she wanted to speak to the investigator as soon as possible. Flores waited until he got back to his office so he could record his phone conversation with Jody. The detective had received information that Jody had moved back to Northern California a couple of months prior, so he wasn't yet pegging her as a suspect, but he thought she might have some information useful in his investigation. He spoke with Jody that afternoon for over 40 minutes. She was very calm and composed and answered all of his questions with ease. She first told him that she wanted to offer any assistance she could because she was a really good friend of Travis's. 
She told Forrest that she had last spoken to Travis on Tuesday night, June 3rd. She had called him as she was driving to Utah. They had plans, she said, for Travis to make a trip out to Northern California at the end of June. This was in direct contradiction to what Travis's friends had said, namely that Travis told her he no longer wanted to see her, that she'd been stalking him and he was done with her. When asked if he had any enemies or anyone who'd want to harm him, Jody told him that his tires had been slashed last year and that he never locked his doors. She had warned him to do so, but he dismissed her concerns, telling her, you're not my mom. Asked to describe the relationship, Jody truthfully admitted that they had dated for a few months, but had broken up on June 29th of the previous year. They were still friends, though, she told him. She said she was embarrassed to admit it, but they had kind of been more than friends since then. They were intimate, she explained, but not romantically involved. She reported that the last time she'd seen Travis Alexander was in early April before she'd left Arizona to move back to Wairica, California. Later in the conversation, Florence would tell her that some of Travis's friends said that she might have something to do with his death and asked her to explain why they might think that. Oh, gosh, no, I had nothing, Jody began. She then said maybe it was because she was the ex-girlfriend and they'd had some fights when they were together over jealousy and other things, but that was in the past. She then pointed to other possible suspects, a former roommate who'd been kicked out and a neighbor who Travis said didn't like him. Jody then asked if any weapons were used, like a gun. The detective took note of this since the cause of death had not yet been revealed. Flores told her he couldn't say yet, and asked her if Travis had any guns in the house. No, he wasn't one to keep any of that, she answered. The autopsy report done by the Maricopa County Office of the Medical Examiner revealed that Travis had received several wounds to his body, including three mortal ones. There were over two dozen stab wounds to his body, including his chest, back, neck, and head. The first mortal wound had been a stab wound in his chest near his heart, in the M.E.'s opinion. The knife had cut into the protective sac around the heart and perforated a major vein. This was a serious wound, but would not have immediately incapacitated him. It was almost certain he had fought his attacker from the amount of blood spilled throughout the bathroom and hallway, as well as some defensive knife wounds found on his hands. The M.E. concluded that the victim had grabbed for the knife or raised his hands to ward off the blows as he was being attacked resulting in these wounds. The second potentially fatal wound was the one to his neck. The knife had been drawn across the throat from one ear to the other. It was a deep gash that had also severed the windpipe and reached almost to the spine. This wound would have been fatal almost immediately. The last mortal injury that was found was a gunshot wound to the right temple. The bullet had passed through the brain, but not exited the body. This shot, like the neck wound, would have also caused Travis to lapse into unconsciousness almost immediately and would have been quickly fatal. Because the shell casing was found in a pool of blood on the bathroom floor, it was determined that he had been shot after he was already dead or dying. Examining the blood evidence, Lisa Perry of the Mesa Police Department would analyze blood spatter patterns to determine the most likely scenario as follows. Travis had first been stabbed in the chest while in the shower. Bleeding profusely, he then stumbled to the sink and bled over it. The attack on him continued from behind. There were many more stab wounds to his back and the back of his head and neck. 
He then moved from the bathroom as far as the end of the hallway before his throat had been slit. He was down on the floor when it happened, as the large pool and the rest of the spatter pattern was found lower on the wall. He'd then been dragged back into the bathroom, shot, and then stuffed in the shower. Flores had seen many murder scenes, but this one was particularly brutal. Travis Alexander, in essence, had been killed three times over. The next odd thing Jody Arias did was to offer to travel to Arizona, over 1,000 miles and 15 hours on the road from her home, to provide swabs for DNA testing and fingerprint samples. She arrived in Mesa on June 17th. Since she'd said she hadn't seen Travis since early April, it was an unusual offer. They took her up on it anyway. Two days later, Flores would be thrilled to discover a break in the case. He called Juan Martinez and said, You're not going to believe this. The crime lab had been able to retrieve photos from the camera found inside the washing machine. The memory card was still inside the camera. The photos had been deleted from the card, but a technician had been able to restore them. Some of the photographs were pictures of Jody Arias, naked in Travis's bedroom. The timestamp on the photos was June 4, 2008. But beyond that, there were also photographs that would clearly document the murder and provide evidence as to the perpetrator. The first group of photos was timestamped beginning at 1.42 p.m. on June 4th. There were four nude pictures of Jody and two of Travis. They were all taken in the master bedroom. There was no question now that Jody had been in Travis's house on June 4th. It was pretty obvious that they had engaged in sexual activity that day as well. The second group of photos began later that day. The first timestamp was 5.22 p.m. There were 20 pictures in all of Travis naked in the shower. All of the photos were taken within 20 minutes, the last one at 5.30 p.m. The first 16 pictures were of Travis standing in the shower as the water was running. In some of them, he was facing the camera. In others, he had his eyes closed facing the shower spray. And in still others, his back was to the camera as he was facing the shower wall. The last four pictures were of him sitting on the shower floor. The first of these was taken at 5.28 p.m. The last picture of Travis alive was taken at 5.30 p.m. 45 seconds later, a final group of photos taken inadvertently were three images that documented his murder. The photos were taken upside down and were dark, but had been enhanced by the technician to make out the figures that were captured. The first one, taken at 5.31 p.m., showed the bathroom ceiling above the shower. No one could be seen in this picture, but the detective believed that this one had been accidentally snapped just prior to or during the first part of the stabbing. The second picture was taken at 5.32 and 16 seconds. Travis could be seen lying on his back in the hallway. His throat had already been cut and blood was visible flowing from his neck to his back and onto the carpet. A person's foot can be seen in the foreground and the person is grabbing or lifting his right arm. A striped pant leg is visible. The last picture, taken at 5.33 and 32 seconds, shows Travis's body being dragged down the hallway towards the bathroom. Even though the photos seemed to point to Jody as the murderer of Travis Alexander, 
Both Martinez and Flores knew it wasn't enough. Her face was not visible in the murder photos, so they'd need more proof that she was the person who'd perpetrated the crime. They needed physical evidence to be sure they could charge her with murder. Luckily for them, if not for Jody, there was more physical evidence. They had the bloody palm print on the hallway that had already been rushed to the lab to determine if it was a match with Jody's prints. While waiting for the results to be returned, Detective Flores had another phone interview with Jody. On July 25th, she laid out her alibi, stating that she had left Wairika on June 2nd to meet up with her friend Ryan Burns in Utah. She was attending a prepaid legal conference and planned to arrive on the morning of June 4th. She told Flores that she'd gotten lost, driving the wrong direction several times, and had arrived one day late to the conference. They checked with Brian Burns, and he confirmed that Jody arrived in Salt Lake City for the conference on June 5th. He did not know where she had been between the 2nd and the 5th. Later, he would also tell investigators that while she was still in Salt Lake, he'd noticed her fingers were bandaged and asked her what had happened. She said she'd cut them when she broke a glass while bartending at the Margaritaville restaurant in Wairika. Flores would later discover that there was no Margaritaville restaurant in Wairika. During the phone call, Flores told Jody about finding the camera in the washing machine. However, he told her a lie, saying it had been completely destroyed and they'd been unable to recover any photographs from it. Now feeling comfortable about answering more questions, Jody began to elaborate on how she was an experienced photographer and even suggested to the detective that he might be able to send it to a data recovery service to try and retrieve the photos. This girl had balls, the detective thought. The day after the phone call, Flores received information from the fingerprint examiner. The bloody latent palm print found in the hallway belonged to Jody. But because latent prints cannot be dated, they were unable to be sure when Jody had left the print. They decided to wait for the DNA results to be returned before making their next move. On June 16th, a memorial service was held for Travis in Arizona. Jody flew in on the 15th to attend. She was invited to stay with friends who had traveled with her and Travis and considered Jody a friend, Dan and Desiree Freeman. The next day, they were to attend the regular Sunday service at Travis's church, followed by the memorial service. On the way to the church, Jody asked if they could stop so she could see Travis's house. They did, and Dan Freeman said that he noticed nothing unusual about Jody as they walked around the front yard before leaving for the service. When she arrived at the memorial service, Travis's friends were shocked and angered by her presence. They all considered her the only suspect to their friend's brutal murder and couldn't believe she'd dare show her face. Some noted that while others were distraught and grieving during the service, Jody sat calmly and never shed a tear. Afterwards, she seemed upbeat as she went around greeting people she'd once spent time with when she and Travis were a couple. She'd even brought photo albums that she set up on a table at the service. They contained pictures she'd taken of Travis, some with her in them as well. She asked the mourners to take pictures out they particularly liked and to write a personal message for the family. This would be a gift from her for Travis's family. She was given the cold shoulder by most of the attendees, and her presence was awkward, to say the least. Perhaps because of this, she did not attend Travis's funeral that took place in Riverside the following week. 
Travis was buried in the Olivewood Memorial Park on June 21st. Jody sent a bouquet of flowers to Travis's beloved grandmother with a sympathy card. His grandmother promptly threw them in the garbage. On July 3rd, the DNA results from the bloody palm print were returned. The blood samples were identified as belonging to both Travis Alexander and Jody Arias. As well, there was a strand of hair found mixed in the blood that belonged to Jody. Now, with a combination of the latent prints, the DNA results, and the photos, the prosecutor felt he could arrest Jody Arias and charge her with the murder of Travis Alexander. On July 9th, Juan Martinez presented the case against Arias to the Maricopa County Grand Jury. That same day, the grand jury returned a true bill charging Jody Ann Arias with the first-degree murder of Travis Victor Alexander. Now they just had to arrest her and bring her to trial. Jody was back in Northern California. The Mesa police called the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office for assistance in locating and arresting her. Detective Flores, along with another detective and a police sergeant, were flying to Wairika to make the arrest and execute a search warrant for her home. The sheriff's office surveilled her parents' residence, but her car was not seen at the home on South Oregon Street in Wairika. They soon discovered that her car had been repossessed. They would have to locate her another way. They tried her previously known places of employment with no luck. Finally, they located her at the home of her grandparents, Caroline and Sunny Allen. They watched the house and noted her parked in front. She and her mother, Sandra, were observed talking inside the car. Her mother seemed agitated, and Arius appeared to be crying. After a while, she went inside the house, and her mother drove off. She showed no sign that she was aware of being watched. They could see through a bedroom window that she was packing a suitcase. The lights went out, and the surveillance team left around midnight. The next morning, July 15th, an officer from the Wairika Police Department arrived under the pretense of following up on a previous burglary report. Two months earlier, on May 28th, Jody's grandmother had called police. The couple had been gone most of the day, and when they returned, they found that their home had been broken into and some items were missing. Arius was living with her grandparents at the time and told officers that she left the house in the afternoon, returning after her grandmother called her to tell her about the break-in. Investigators noted in their report that they found it suspect that only a few items had been taken and others, in plain view, were left. A CD player was missing from the grandparents' room, a DVD player from the living room, and $30 cash had been taken from the bedroom Arius occupied. The money had been sitting on top of her dresser, she reported. The last item reported stolen was a 25 caliber handgun that her grandfather kept inside a dresser in another bedroom. It was the same caliber weapon that had been used to shoot Travis Alexander. There were other guns along with the 25, but those had not been taken. Other items left behind were a laptop computer and a large amount of change on the same dresser where the gun had been, things that could have easily been taken away, the investigators noted. Now arriving at the home on July 15th, the officers observed a rental car parked in front of the house. Several boxes could be seen in the back seat some with Jody written on them in black marker. The officers called Arias outside and arrested her for the murder of Travis Alexander. She was compliant and said nothing. Police then searched the home and the rental car. 
They took several things to aid in the investigation, including Aries's personal journals, cell phones, her computer, and a box of papers and receipts. In the car, they found two large kitchen knives in the boxes, as well as a 9mm semi-automatic handgun in the spare tire compartment in the trunk. They took these as well. At the station, after advising her of her Miranda rights, Flores quickly confronted Arius with the fingerprint and DNA evidence, as well as the photographs. She was unfazed and continued to assert that she had not been at Travis's house since April. Flores questioned her about her relationship with Travis, and she was very forthcoming about the troubles they'd had. However, to hear her tell it, Travis was the jealous and controlling one in the relationship. She said they continued to sleep together even after they'd broken up over a year ago. Jody said she knew about the other girls he had dated, specifically Lisa and Mimi, although she said she'd only found out about Mimi at Travis's memorial service. That was a different story from what Flores had heard by Travis's friends. They said that Travis suspected Jody of hacking into his Facebook account, and he said she was going to mess things up for him with Mimi. Jody told Flores that she had been happy that Travis had someone new. She also explained that Travis had an open-door policy with her and that she was free to come and go, sometimes even to stay at his house when he was traveling. She would sometimes take care of his dog. She said they would have sex when he was home, but they'd agreed to keep the relationship a secret. Jody exhibited some strange behavior during her first interrogation. The interview was recorded on video, and the camera continued to run when the detective was not in the room. While alone, she was observed to sing, fix her makeup while saying to herself, you should have at least done your makeup, Jody. Gosh. She even performed a headstand against the wall. She seemed unconcerned that she had been arrested for the brutal murder of her ex-boyfriend. Flores asked Jody to take him through the days leading up to Travis's body being found. She told him she had left Wairika in a rented white Ford Focus on June 2nd. She had been scheduled to attend a conference in Salt Lake City, but instead of traveling directly there, she had first driven in the opposite direction, south to Santa Cruz, then on to Monterey, where she spent one night, before heading to Los Angeles. She said she had a photography gig there, but it had been canceled, so she then left for Utah. On the way, she had gotten lost, took a nap in her car, and finally finished the drive to Salt Lake, arriving on Thursday, June 5th. The detective pointed out that even driving the route she'd described, she'd still have over 18 hours available, where she could have gone to Travis's house, had sex with him, committed the murder, and cleaned up before leaving. She continued to deny that she had been anywhere near Mesa that week. Jody, this is over, the detective said, weary of her lies now. He laid out the evidence against her so far. The gun stolen from her grandfather's house was the same caliber weapon used to shoot Travis. The palm print that belonged to her, with her and Travis's blood mixed in it. The hair found on the bloody wall that also matched her DNA. He then brought out the album of photographs. He showed her the pictures of herself naked in Travis's room with the date stamped June 4th. He also showed her the pictures of Travis in the shower, taken right before his murder. Is he naked? she asked. In the shower? She then said that Travis would never go for something like that. Um, it was obvious he did, but even with the photographic proof, she continued to deny having sex with Travis or even seeing him since April of that year. Flores then showed her a picture of the foot 
captured in the photo of Travis being dragged down the hallway. She had already admitted to the detective that she had a pair of striped pants. Now she said that this wasn't her foot. She said the zipper was wrong, there were too many stripes, etc. She was unflappable. Finally realizing he would get nowhere with her, he said they were done. Jody was taken across the street to the county jail and booked for murder. The next day she was brought before a judge and her bond was set for $2 million. She would be extradited back to Arizona to await trial. Before she was sent back to Arizona, however, Flores decided to have one more interview with her, thinking after she'd spent some time in jail, she might be more willing to talk. She did have more to say. However, the story she now laid out was nothing like he expected. Now she admitted that she had been at Travis's home on June 4th, arriving around 4.30 a.m. She said she entered his home and, not seeing anyone, went up to his room. He was awake, she said, and was watching videos when she arrived. She picked up her story at the point when Travis was in the shower. She began taking pictures of him for his MySpace page, she said. All of a sudden, she'd heard a loud bang and then Travis screaming. She was knocked out for a moment, and when she came to, Travis was on all fours in the bathroom, holding his head. She then saw two people, a man and a woman. They were Caucasian and were wearing dark clothes and ski masks. The female said they needed to kill Jody, while the male said they were only there for Travis. She ran into Travis's closet and was chased by the masked man. He held the gun to her head and told her not to move. Trying to save Travis, she said she sprang from the closet and jumped the female who was standing over him. Jody says the female intruder pushed her aside and she could see that Travis was bleeding everywhere. Amazingly, the assailants then left the room and she could hear them arguing about what to do with her. She tried to help Travis up when the woman came back in with a knife. Jody said she struggled with the woman for the knife. Now the pair decided to spare Jody's life for some reason. The man went through her purse, took out some cash, and looked at her driver's license. Now that he knew her address, he then threatened her and her family and told her not to tell anyone what had happened. He then told her to leave, which she did. Detective Flores told her that her story was ludicrous. The fact that they left you alive and let you go? That never happens. Why would anyone do that? It doesn't make any sense, he told her, and said he didn't believe one word of it. Nevertheless, Jody would continue to insist that that was what happened for the next two years. On September 5, 2008, three years and one week after Travis Alexander first met Jody Arias, she was extradited to Mesa to be tried for his murder. In her booking photo, she posed smiling coyly with her head cocked to one side, as if she was taking a yearbook photo or a prom picture. She was placed in the maximum security section of the Maricopa County Women's Jail. Six days later, she entered a plea of not guilty, and once again, a bond of $2 million was set. Beginning just days after her extradition back to Arizona, Arias began granting media interviews. This was unusual, to say the least, but the controversial sheriff of Maricopa County, Joe Arpaio, said, The media wants to talk to her, and she wants to talk to them. He allowed reporters almost unlimited access to Arias while she was in jail. Other controversial decisions Arpaio made during his 24-year career as sheriff were using food recovered from food rescue organizations to feed inmates, 
setting up a tent city as an extension of the county jail that was condemned by Amnesty International, and making inmates, both male and female, wear pink underwear, and reinstituting chain gangs for inmates. He also sought out media coverage for himself and the sheriff's office during his tenure, and was even featured on reality television shows. The first interview Arias granted was to the Arizona Republic. She told the reporter, God knows I'm innocent. One day, when I am before God, I will not be held accountable for Travis's death. She continued to claim that he'd been killed by two intruders. On the day of her arraignment, she held a press conference, again stating her innocence. Now the media outlets nationwide picked up on the story, and the public couldn't be more intrigued with the case. As a media story, it had everything. Sex, attractive young people at the center, religion, secret lives, a bloody crime scene, and accidental photos, as well as nudie pics. Arias began to relish her time in the spotlight and continued to give interviews and gain notoriety. She was filmed in her own clothes instead of prison stripes and wearing full makeup. Her assertions that she had been a victim of masked intruders who had murdered her friend became more bold. She told the reporter for the popular television show Inside Edition, God knows I'm innocent. Travis knows I'm innocent. And no jury is going to convict me. And you can mark my words on that. On September 31st, the district attorney's office filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty against Jody Ann Arias. Arias remained in jail while the legal wrangling continued. She continued to tell her two-intruder story to the media. That is, until June of 2010. At that time, during the discovery process, the defense handed over to the state copies of 10 letters they claimed were written by Travis Alexander between November 2006 and May 27, 2008. These letters made negative allegations about his character, including accusing him of an attraction for young boys. Now the defense told the court that Arias would claim self-defense at trial. She now admitted the intruder story had been a lie and said she told it to cover up the true story, namely that she was being attacked by Travis and was defending herself when he was killed. The letters, they claimed, would show a past history of abuse towards Arias that would prove their claim of self-defense. Ultimately, the court would not allow the letters to be admitted at trial. The court of public opinion, however, believed the letters to be forgeries. In any case, they never came into evidence. Now Jody's story had changed three times. First, she said she wasn't present when the murder took place. Second, she said she had been there, but masked intruders had killed him. And finally, she had admitted she had been there and she had killed him, but only in self-defense. Now, three years after her arrest and three versions later, the defense offered to take a plea deal. Arias would plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for a specific term serving from 10 to 22 years in prison. The prosecution said no dice, they were not willing to negotiate, and believed they had all the evidence they needed to prove Arias guilty of premeditated murder. After some debate, and even a short period where Arias tried to defend herself, Kirk Nurmi and Jennifer Wilmot were picked as the attorney team to defend her in court. On December 10, 2012, the trial of the state of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias finally began four and one-half years after Travis Alexander's murder. 
Prosecutor Juan Martinez would be handling the trial alone, without benefit of co-counsel. He was not new to this game, but it would be challenging. He would be joined at the prosecution table by Detective Esteban Flores, whom he'd first walked the crime scene with in 2008. Martinez was small in stature, only 5 foot 4 inches tall, but his presence in the courtroom was powerful. He didn't shy away from speaking plainly and was aggressive and even flamboyant in the courtroom. He had prosecuted homicide cases for 17 years, and his tenacity, unwillingness to plea bargain, and theatrical style made him especially disliked by defense attorneys. While death penalty cases were often difficult to win when it came to female defendants, Martinez had tried and won them before. He sent Wendy Adriano to death row in 2004 after she was convicted of murdering her terminally ill husband with poison to collect on a life insurance policy. When the poison didn't work quickly enough, she stabbed him in the neck and then claimed self-defense. She was sentenced to die based on the cruelty of the crime. Judge Sherry Stevens would sit on the bench for the Arias trial. She had been a judge for 11 years, and this would be her most high-profile case. Throughout the trial, the courtroom would be packed. Many of Travis Alexander's friends and family members would attend, including his siblings Gary, Greg, Samantha, Tanisha, Hillary, Allie, and Stephen. Tanisha, Stephen, and Samantha would be in the courtroom almost every day. Travis's mother had died three years before his murder. Travis's beloved grandmother died just days before jury selection began for the trial. His family would say that she had never gotten over his death, and it was just too much for her to take. Travis's supporters would wear blue ribbons to court to show their support for him. Jody's mother, Sandra, would also be in court most days. Sandra's twin sister, Susan, would often accompany her. Jody's father, in ailing health, would attend sporadically when he could travel from Northern California. Two of her siblings, Joey and Angela, would attend sometimes as well. Jody's family would begin wearing purple ribbons, signifying domestic violence awareness. The rest of the seats in the courtroom were highly coveted by the public, who had grown obsessed with the case and often treated it as a form of salacious entertainment as the proceedings unfolded. An offshoot of the CNN network, the cable network HLN, would carry the court proceedings daily, often live throughout the trial. The prosecutor began the trial by taking the jury through the events of June 4, 2008, and laid out the theory of the murder. He described Travis's dead body, found five days after his murder in his own bedroom. He also described the 27 knife wounds, the slashed throat, and the gunshot wound to his head, as well as the bloody scene where they believed he had fought fiercely for his life. He went through the three different stories Jody Arias had told and how many lies she'd been caught in before finally coming up with an alternate theory of self-defense. He told the jury how she had been quoted in the media as saying that no jury would ever convict her. The defense admitted off the bat that Arias had killed Travis Alexander, but they would show that she'd been forced to do so in her own defense as he attacked her. Nermi began shifting the blame onto the victim, describing Travis as living a double life, a life outside of his professed Mormon faith. He called Jody Arias Travis Alexander's dirty little secret. Travis's family glared at the defense attorney as he blamed the brother they loved for his own brutal murder. Nermi painted Arias as weak and submissive, and Travis as dominant, cruel, dismissive, and degrading towards her. He told the jury that Travis degraded his client 
by telling his friends that she was a crazy stalker and by calling her a slut and a whore and worse in text and email messages. He then brought up the allegation of domestic violence, but described it as Travis controlling her through verbal and emotional abuse. He told the jury that domestic violence often goes unreported by the victim because of shame or fear. The defense needed to say this in order to explain why there was absolutely no evidence of Jody ever mentioning physical abuse by Travis, not even in her own journals. The defense would continually stress the fact that Travis was living a double life. He was, on the one hand, they pointed out, a dedicated and active member of his Mormon church. On the other hand, he was having casual and frequent sex with Jody Arias even after he told friends that he had broken up with her and just wanted her to leave him alone. Not only was he having out-of-wedlock sex, they would state, but the graphic nature of the sex acts as well as the sexually graphic texts, phone conversations, and messages Travis and Jody shared were beyond the pale. This point was belabored for a couple of reasons. One, because they wanted to present Travis as a hypocrite and minimize the appearance that Travis was good while Jody was evil. And two, they wanted to show that Travis was living a life that his friends and family knew nothing about. They wanted the jury to come away thinking if no one knew about this part of his life, perhaps there were other secrets as well. He needed to convince the jury that maybe Travis Alexander was abusive and controlling, and Jody was the only witness. To this end, the defense would provide testimony and evidence of Travis's sex life with Jody Arias in graphic detail throughout the trial. There was nothing too private, too personal, too graphic, or too tawdry to share with the jury— and because it was televised live, with the world as well. The prosecution would need to prove the crime was premeditated for it to qualify as a first-degree murder. They also needed to show that it fit the requirements for extreme cruelty to make Arius eligible for the death penalty. The premeditation, the defense would argue, began when Arius staged the burglary of her grandparents' home in order to steal the gun that was used to shoot Travis. It continued when she rented the car that she drove to Arizona in Redding, California, 100 miles south of Wairika. They showed the jury that there were at least two other car rental agencies closer to her home, but she didn't want to be observed renting this car. Also, when she'd arrived to rent the car on June 2nd, she was given the keys to a red car, but said she didn't want a loud color and instead traded it for a white car. Arius was already making sure to fly under the radar since she knew her mission was murder, the prosecution argued. The car rental agent also said that when she'd arrived on June 2nd, she was blonde, and when she'd returned the car, she was a brunette. The defense claimed that she was trying to hide her identity unless anyone caught a glimpse of her near Travis's house. Martinez also showed how Arias tried to create an alibi by leaving several messages for Travis after she knew he was already dead. On June 4th at 11.30 p.m., she left a voicemail on his cell phone. He would have been dead for six hours by then. Testimony also showed that she had turned off her cell phone when she left Los Angeles and only turned it back on again as she approached Salt Lake City on June 5th. It was common knowledge that cell phones would ping the tower it was located nearest to, even when not in use. She turned her phone off so as not to leave a record of the areas where she had traveled between June 3rd and June 5th. Martinez would show that Arias stopped at her ex-boyfriend Daryl Brewer's house in Monterey on June 3rd and borrowed two five-gallon gas cans. When she did so, she told him she was on her way to Mesa. The prosecutor believed that she did so in order to prevent the need to stop for gas 
on the route to or from Arizona. In this way, she could avoid leaving a paper trail or a gas station surveillance camera record. All these actions pointed to premeditation, Martinez said. He also took the jury through the state's theory of the sequence of events the night of the murder. They used the photos to show that Jody first surprised Travis when he was in the shower, plunging the knife into his chest. He was then attacked from behind and stabbed several times as he bled over the sink. He broke away only to fall in the hallway. It was then that Jody drew the knife across his throat, nearly decapitating him in the process. They argued that Travis was still alive when this fatal cut was made, and if so, the crime met the definition of extreme cruelty. The defense called or recalled witnesses that they would use to portray Travis Alexander as selfish, immature, sex-obsessed, and abusive. They called Lisa Andrews, Travis's ex-girlfriend, to the stand. Nermi went line by line over an email Lisa had sent Travis while they were dating. In it, she had accused him of being too interested in sex and not behaving appropriately for a proper Mormon relationship. Nermi had her admit that she was uncomfortable with the way Travis sometimes came on to her, grabbing her behind and hinting at wanting sex. She also admitted that she told him she felt they had gone too far because they had kissed too intimately and for too long. She told the jury that she had broken up with Travis and told him she couldn't continue to see him as long as Jody was still in his life. The jury didn't get to hear about the two tire-slashing incidents that she and Travis suspected had been perpetrated by Jody. The defense's most important witness, Jody Arias herself, took the stand on June 4th. For 18 days, she testified in minute detail about her relationship with Travis Alexander. For the trial, she adopted a conservative figure. Her hair was now brown, and her face, bearing very little makeup, was framed by bangs. She wore frameless glasses and dressed in simple slacks and high-necked blouses. Nermi began his questioning by asking her, Did you kill Travis Alexander on June 4, 2008? Yes, I did, she answered. Why? The simple answer is that he attacked me, and I defended myself. The story she told was of having gone to visit Travis on June 4 at his invitation. They had spent the day in bed and taken the photos in his bedroom. He had become angry, she said, when a CD containing photos from one of their trips wouldn't work on his computer. He had thrown it against a wall, and she began rubbing his back to try and calm him down. She then told the jury that he'd roughly removed her clothes and had sex with her in his office. She didn't resist, she said, because she didn't want him to become angry with her. From the past, she said, she'd come to learn not to antagonize him and to just go along with his rough treatment. Jody said they then went back upstairs to the bedroom. He got in the shower and wanted her to take pictures of him. He'd lost some 40 pounds recently, she said, and liked to show off his body. This was in direct contradiction to what she told Detective Flores when he showed her the nude pictures of Travis after her arrest. Then she'd said it wasn't him because he was too modest to be photographed nude and would never go for that kind of thing. As she was sitting on the floor by the shower taking pictures of him, she leaned forward to show him some of the photos in the camera display but the camera had slipped out of her hands and hit the tile on the shower floor. At this, he had become enraged, she said, yelling at her for dropping the camera. He then stepped out of the shower and body slammed her to the floor. She got up and was able to get away, running down the hall and then turning into the walk-in closet. She said she knew he kept a gun in the closet and she grabbed it. 
He continued to chase her, and they ended up back in the bathroom. He grabbed her by the waist, and the gun went off accidentally, she claimed. How then, she was asked, did the stab wounds and the slashed throat happen? It was the million-dollar question. She said she remembered breaking away from Travis, and then could remember nothing that happened after that. She said there was a huge gap in her memory, and she had no recall of the next five hours. The prosecution, on cross-examination, would point out several problems with her story. First, she said she'd run down the hall, but instead of turning left and out of the master bedroom and down the stairs to get away, she'd turned right and into the walk-in closet to retrieve the gun. Not only had she told Detective Flores during her interrogation that Travis had never owned a gun, but there was no sign of a struggle, nor did they find anything out of place in the closet area, as shown in the photos taken at the crime scene. But the biggest problem with her version was that the medical examiner had determined Travis had been shot after he'd been stabbed. The bullet had been found lying in blood, which indicated it had been fired after he'd already began bleeding profusely. The ME also concluded that the bullet wound to his head would have incapacitated him immediately. There was no way that he could have transported himself down the hallway where the large pool of blood had been found, the place where his throat had been cut. It didn't make any sense that she would shoot him and then later drag him down the hallway and then slash his throat. Her story just didn't hold up to the forensic evidence. Also in her version, she would have had to drag him into the shower, turn on the water, try and wash away the blood evidence, delete the photos from the camera, place it along with Travis's clothing in the washing machine, remove the gun and possibly the knife from the house, and discard them somewhere all while in this blackout period where she said she remembered nothing. The defense took her through her relationship with Travis, beginning from when they first met until June 4, 2008. The television ratings during this portion of the trial could not have been higher, as Jody, in great detail and without any embarrassment, described just about every sex act she and Travis had ever engaged in. She told it matter-of-factly, but the jury was visibly uncomfortable, often squirming in their seats. Travis's friends and family were angry at what they considered an obvious ploy by the defense to defame the victim. Jody's mother and sister also looked stricken hearing Jody's descriptions of every type of sex imaginable told in graphic detail. But she wasn't through dragging her victim through the mud. The next thing she would describe would outrage everyone and turn the tide decidedly against her. She told the jury that she'd found Travis masturbating to a picture of a little boy in underwear. She ran from the room and went home feeling nauseous. She said she decided that if she continued to do everything Travis wanted her to do sexually, it might help him to end his sick obsession with little boys. Jody misplayed her hand with this particular story. Accusing the person she had so viciously murdered of being a pedophile would create a huge backlash against her in the media. One couldn't help but wonder how the jury would respond. Jody Arias became one of the most despised people in the country, with most people universally agreeing that she was a vicious liar. Never before to police, to investigators, or in any of her numerous media interviews had she claimed such a thing. Now most commented, if she would go this far, what wouldn't she lie about? In a final insult before leaving the stand, she described an incident where she said Travis abused her by kicking her in the ribs and breaking her finger. It was also unbelievable, and the public, at least, wasn't buying it. To drive a final lurid nail in the coffin of Travis Alexander's reputation, 
the defense brought in Exhibit 428, an audio recording of a phone sex session that took place between him and Jody Arias on May 10th. This was the phone call that Jody had secretly recorded. Shortly before that date, she had moved from Arizona back to Northern California. The conversation started off amicably, with Jody and Travis discussing their travel plans for the summer. In the call, Jody begins introducing sex into the conversation, and Travis joins in. The call descends into full-blown phone sex, with the two of them seeming to try and outdo each other in raunchiness. The call was not only being broadcast in the court, but live on television as well. Certain words and phrases had to be bleeped out by network censors, and many people were noticeably embarrassed. Jody at times hid her face in her hands. Why the defense felt the need to play the audio in full is questionable. The fact that it was considered relevant in its entirety to the court is equally baffling. Because the defense had already made its point to the jury that Travis Alexander was a young man who had a very active sex life with Jody Arias, makes the admission of the sex tape clearly gratuitous. If the defense had been hoping that the tape would portray Travis as a sexual aggressor, or just provide more proof that he was a willing and active participant in the relationship, they may have overplayed their hand. Many, after hearing the tape, had three takeaways. Number one, that far from being a meek and docile female controlled by Travis, it was clear that Jody was comfortable in taking the lead sexually. The tape also proved that she was an enthusiastic participant in sexual fantasies and fetishes that bordered or even crossed into the pornographic. Two, that Travis Alexander was a real, live human being before Jody Arias ended his life so brutally. Hearing his voice in court brought Travis to life for the jury. It took him out of the abstract, and in doing so, his loss was felt more deeply. And three, that Jody had recorded this conversation for some purpose. Some now believe that purpose might have been to threaten Travis with the release of the tape. If so, it may have prompted the fight just two weeks later on May 26, when Travis told Jody that he never wanted to see or talk to her again. Hearing this may have made her angry enough or desperate enough to decide to end his life. On cross-examination, Juan Martinez would use Jody's own journals to pick apart many of her assertions. Nowhere in the journals she faithfully kept for years did she mention abuse at the hands of Travis Alexander. Martinez pulled out specific entries to highlight her lies to the court. There was a gap in entries between January 20th and January 24th, 2008. She testified that on January 21st, she had caught Travis with the photo of the boy, and the next day he had broken her finger. But in the January 24th entry, she'd written, I haven't written because there has been nothing noteworthy to report. Another aspect of her testimony that the media and the public noted was that Jody acted soft-spoken, demure, and mild while being questioned by her defense attorney, but became defiant, bold, and aggressive when challenged by the prosecution. The defense also presented two mental health experts who would testify to Joey being an abused woman who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and dissociative amnesia. Dr. Richard Samuels testified that after interviewing Jody Arias a dozen times over three years, he found that she had been so traumatized by the violence of Travis's death that she suffered from dissociative amnesia, a type of memory loss associated with severe trauma. This is why she was unable to remember anything that happened immediately afterwards, he claimed, 
A person in a dissociative state, he explained, might only retain bits and pieces of their memory following a traumatic event. On cross, Martinez was able to identify several lies that Jody had told during her interviews with the doctor. He was asked if knowing that the details she had reported to him were false, if that would taint his findings. The doctor said that it would. Martinez then pointed out that the doctor's diagnosis was based on the false story about the two intruders she was still telling at that time. Why then, once he knew that Jody was the actual killer, didn't he readminister the tests to her? The doctor finally had to admit that he should have done so. Alice LaViolette was a psychotherapist renowned in the field of domestic violence and respected for her work with abused women. She believed that Jody was a victim of domestic violence after interviewing her for over 40 hours, as well as by reading her journals and some of Travis's. La Violette painted Jody as vulnerable, easily manipulated, and unassertive. This flew directly in the face of what the court had just witnessed, as Jody had gone toe-to-toe with Juan Martinez, one of the most aggressive prosecutors to ever step into an Arizona courtroom. It seemed ludicrous. It had been clearly demonstrated throughout the trial that Jody was a chronic liar, but La Violette based her assessment of Jody on her accounts of violence at the hands of Travis Alexander without any other corroboration. Based almost solely on Jody's account, Dr. La Violette had concluded that she was a battered woman. However, she was able to point to messages Travis had sent to Jody. In particular, she had highlighted the one sent during the May 26th fight in which he'd called her a freaking whore, a cheap whore, and a three-hole wonder. As a result of the trial and her belief that Jody Arias was a domestic violence victim, La Violette lost credibility in her field. She was also eviscerated by the media for what they considered her manipulation by Jody Arias. She even received death threats and had to go underground for a time to escape all the negative media attention. Jody Arias was so despised by the public that hatred for her spilled out onto those around her who were simply trying to do their jobs. To disagree with the defense experts' findings was one thing, but to demonize and attack them in the media was uncalled for. The prosecution called their own expert to the stand, psychologist Janine DeMart. She'd spent 12 hours interviewing Jody and diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder. She explained that Jody had exhibited seven out of the nine symptoms of BPD, including suicidal thoughts, lack of identity, a tendency towards unstable relationships, rapidly changing emotions, and intense anger. She also explained that people with the disorder tended to blame others for their problems and are prone to violent outbursts when they feel wronged. The trial finally wound up after four months and at the cost of $1.6 million to taxpayers for just the first phase. Juan Martinez ended the prosecution's case by saying, The state is asking you to return a verdict of guilty as to first-degree murder, not only as premeditated murder, but as to felony murder. For no other reason, then it's your duty and the facts and the law support it. Nermi's summation urged the jury not to be guided by sympathy or prejudice or fear, fears to how your verdict will be received by those who love Travis Alexander or by those who love Jody Arias or by the world at large. He concluded by saying, ultimately, If Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. The jury began its deliberations on Friday, May 3, 2013. 
As it was the weekend, they concluded after a few hours that evening and were dismissed until the following Monday. On the afternoon of Wednesday, May 8th, the jury notified the bailiff that they had reached a verdict. As to count one, first-degree murder, guilty. Travis's friends and family let out an audible gasp, and many began hugging one another in elation. Jody seemed shocked. All 12 jurors agreed it was premeditated murder, and seven of the 12 believed it was premeditated as well as felony murder. Within minutes after leaving the courtroom, Jody granted an interview to Fox 10 News in Phoenix. She admitted she had not expected the verdict. There was no premeditation, she said. The whole time I was fairly confident I wouldn't get premeditation because there was no premeditation. She said the worst outcome for her would be spending the rest of her natural life in prison. I said years ago that I would rather get death than life, and that's still true today, she told the reporter. I believe death is the ultimate freedom, so I would rather just have my freedom as soon as I can get it. The second part of the trial had yet to begin. This was the aggravation phase of the trial, where the same jury had to decide if the murder of Travis Alexander could be deemed especially cruel, which would make Jody Arias eligible for the death penalty. Dr. Horn, who had performed the autopsy on Travis, was called to the stand to describe his wounds in detail. The jury quickly came to a unanimous decision that the murder was especially cruel. Next, the penalty phase of the trial began. Friends and family members of the victim were allowed to make statements to the court. Travis's brother Stephen and his sister Samantha both spoke on behalf of their brother. Samantha told the court how losing Travis had destroyed their family and hastened the death of their grandmother. Jody's supporters were allowed to speak to plead for her life. Her best friend Patty, from junior high, was scheduled to speak, but withdrew. She said she felt threatened by anonymous people online and was intimidated by the prosecutor. She also said that she could not speak on Jody's behalf because she could not condone her violent act. The defense called for a mistrial, claiming the prosecutor had a hand in the witness withdrawing. The judge denied their motion. The defense then stated that they would call no defense witnesses for the penalty phase. Jody alone spoke for herself. She spent 20 minutes addressing the court. She talked about wanting to do charitable work during her time in prison. She said she wanted to work to improve literacy among inmates, planned to donate her hair to the Locks of Love organization, and would implement a prison recycling program. She said that while the court didn't believe she was a battered woman, she would use her time to try and raise awareness about domestic violence. With that, she raised a t-shirt she had designed that had Survivor printed across the front. This chick had some nerve, many thought. She still seemed determined to trash her murder victim. While Jody had said she'd prefer to receive the death sentence over life in prison, she now changed her mind. She said it would hurt her family too much, and she still felt she could do a lot of good in prison with her time left. Finally, she spoke about Travis. She said she loved him and didn't want to expose all their intimate details, but felt she needed to, to honor the oath she had taken. One of the world's best-known liars now spoke of duty and honor. The irony was lost on very few people. As for her crime, she stated, I can hardly believe I was capable of such violence. I will be sorry for the rest of my life. And about Travis's family, she said, I hope with the verdict they will gain a sense of closure. The jury deadlocked on whether Jody should receive the death penalty or life in prison. The judge declared a mistrial in the penalty phase of the trial. 
Afterwards, it was revealed that the vote was eight in favor of death and four opposed. A unanimous decision was required. A year and a half later, another jury was impaneled to decide her fate. The retrial of the penalty phase began on October 21, 2014, and lasted 38 days over the course of four months. This time, 11 out of the 12 jurors voted for the death penalty, but as it was still not a unanimous decision, the judge was forced to declare a second mistrial on March 5, 2015. Arizona law doesn't allow for a third retrial in the sentencing phase, so the judge was charged with determining the sentence. The options were now either life in prison with the possibility of release after 25 years or life in prison with no possibility of release. Judge Sherry Stevens sentenced Jody Arias to life in prison for the rest of her natural life. She was sent to the Arizona State Prison Complex in Perrysville and initially housed in the maximum security unit. In 2013, Jody's brother began selling on eBay pencil drawings his sister had made in prison. The family stated that they would use the money for travel expenses to visit Jody and to provide her with better food in prison. Jody Arias has recently been under disciplinary rule and has had her contact visits suspended for six months for violating prison rules. She keeps to herself and has no friends in prison, it's been reported. She spends her time drawing and receives dozens of letters every week from strangers. She still asserts that she was a victim of domestic violence and that she suffers from PTSD. She was ordered to pay the Alexander family $32,000 in restitution. She has a job in prison and her earnings have been used to make a couple of small payments to the family. Juan Martinez wrote a book about the prosecution of Jody Arias titled Conviction, the untold story of putting Jody Arias behind bars. It was published in 2016. The Arizona State Bar accused him of violating ethics rules regarding the existence and content of certain exhibits previously sealed by court order. The charges were investigated and then dismissed by the Arizona Supreme Court this year. Kirk Nurmi, Arias's defense attorney, agreed to disbarment last year for writing a book about the case before the appeal of her conviction and life sentence was completed. The State Bar of Arizona was set to file a formal complaint against him claiming he had revealed attorney-client-privileged information about Arias and her case in his self-published book, Trapped with Ms. Arias, which he released in 2015. Rather than face disciplinary hearings, he agreed to the disbarment. Travis Alexander's family and friends continue to keep his memory alive on his Facebook page, where they share pictures, memories, and stories. There is a quote from Travis that reads, it is my prayer that we live all the days of our lives, that we will be brave enough to unplug from the matrix and let the greatness within us manifest to all the world so that you will provide courage for others to do the same. Then you can live an abundant, fulfilling life without regret, a life that most of us are afraid to even dream about. I know that such a life exists and that it is intended for all of us. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our social media goddess is Nancy Chen. And our theme music is by the awesome and amazing Cesare Gray. Until next time, be good to one another.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.